This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. Yasin Sikri is Executive Director of the Foundation for Human Rights. A well-known human rights lawyer during the apartheid era, she was appointed as a commissioner on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 1995. She served on the Human Rights Violations Committee and was one of three commissioners who continued to serve until 2003 to complete the work of both the Human Rights Violations Committee and the Amnesty Committee. She was also one of those responsible for the final set of reports of the commission. An expert on international transitional justice, she was appointed by the United Nations to serve on a high-level panel of experts on war crimes in Sri Lanka, and she was one of the international commissioners on the Sierra Leone Truth Commission. I met her in her Johannesburg office and asked her to recall how she felt more than a decade ago when the final volumes of the TRC report were completed. At the time, I, I think I was deeply concerned that, in a sense, we had not done as well as we should have, and that in a, you know the, the work was really incomplete. Um, I also felt that we, what we were leaving was a report in a vacuum. Um, you know, there was no um, structure that was going to really take this on and make the implementation of the recommendations a national project. And I think that what the country deserved at the time was really to set up a follow-up body which would take on the job of really looking at reconciliation as an ongoing project and in the context of that using both the reparations recommendations and um, the other recommendations as part of the drivers really of that process. And I think if you look back on the 20 years, what you can see is that in the absence of that kind of centre or driver, um, we are at the point at which we are now. Which is what? I think South Africa is really in a very polarised space. Um, and it's polarised on the basis of race, on the basis of colour, on ethnicity. And I see that the, um, the signs of that are really the fact that people are protesting because they're unhappy about conditions that they live under. I think the violence that you see in our society is directly linked to the dehumanization that took place during the years of apartheid and the fact that we've not attended to the fact that we're a deeply traumatized country. And um, you can't expect that just because you change laws and policies that um, psychologically people will change or that even that people will respond to their better natures. I think you've seen spikes when we come together like we did when the World Cup happened or when um, President Mandela died. But I think you need at the core um, some structure which actually drives a reconciliation project. I also, I, you know, I'm not surprised, you know, in the Commission there were those of us who argued that in fact the focus on civil and political rights violations was problematic and that really those were only the manifestations of when people stood up against unjust laws and policies and that what we should really be looking at were the structural questions around apartheid, the question of the beneficiary and how one would um, encourage the beneficiaries to be part of a transformation project. 
and that didn't happen. Um, and so what we're living with, I think, are the legacy of the structural um, questions around apartheid, you know, landlessness, poverty, inequality. Um, I think there are enough studies in the world which demonstrate that when you have poverty linked with inequality, then you kind of have the kind of society that we are living in now. And I think that when you, you know, when you compound that with the fact that we have a youth barge, um, a population of probably 60% under 35 who have not just no access to the economy, but they're also unemployable. Then you're sitting with a time bomb that's going to explode. The big question is what can we do to realize what she calls the dream of the Constitution? For me, I think there are three key issues. The one is what do we do with young people and how do we transform this question of unemployability, which is linked to your education levels and your skill levels, that should be a national emergency project, in my view. Our task should be to get people off the streets and, you know, standing at shabins and, like, just being um, basically aimless. I think that this should be a core project, and I'm one of the first people who would hate to see a kind of American-style youth core, but I think that we need some kind of... Um, process which brings young people. I mean, why do we have intermediaries to build roads and houses? Why can't you just use that as a direct process in which you get young people doing construction, rebuilding South Africa? The second issue is of food security. A survey by the National Income Dynamics Study has shown that nearly half the country goes hungry. And then I think the third issue is we've got to address this question of the accumulation and consumerism policy which is driving corruption in a country. Um, the, the notion of an ethical leadership, I think, is absolutely critical. And that is also about, is this what we fought for? We didn't fight for you to become a Wabenzi. What we fought for is that we would build an egalitarian society. So I think if we can tackle these three issues, um, and the other is to focus on how do we harness um, you know, the business sector in terms of a new social compact, um, we can't do it without them. And right now, I think they remain standing on the sidelines. They have an enormous amount of money. They are not investing it in the country. Um, but they live here. And so how do we appeal to their sense that this is not for us, this is for the next generation, and that includes their children and their grandchildren? Reconciliation, she says, is about seeing the quality of your life change, having a stake in society and seeing ethical leadership. But it's also linked to dealing with the past. It speaks really to four pillars, the question of truth recovery, the question of justice, um, the issue of reparations. And the final one is really what we call the guarantee of non-repetition. How do you ensure that? It's not just security sector reform, but how do you ensure that citizens... Um, feel that they can trust the state and its institutions because that's really the true measure of the society that has come to terms with itself and where it will not repeat, I think, the violations of the past. So what needs to happen to prevent that? When I spoke to her late last year, the debate around whether Omar el-Bashir, the president of Sudan, should have been allowed to leave South Africa, where he had attended an African Union meeting, was raging. The International Criminal Court had issued a warrant for his arrest for crimes against humanity, yet he slipped out of the country in contravention of a high court order. 
Nelson Mandela's dream and vision, I think, was of building a democracy in which you would have independent institutions to hold the state to account. Um, I think we have been really disappointed by the way in which some core institutions have been silent in the face of violations. I mean, why have none of them stood up to protect Tulima Donsela? I mean, that's the key question. I mean, it's not about whether she's right or wrong, but it's about the fact that her institution is an independent one and the rest of them should be standing side by side with her. I think the debates that we've been having around the judiciary issue following the Bashir matter, I mean, the president should be sanctioning Minister Nkleko for making those kind of comments. It's not, it's not useful. And I think that... Um, it's really important for ordinary citizens to believe that they can trust in the judiciary. It doesn't help them when um, you know, these issues become so politicized. Um, I think the respect should remain because there are ways in which you test your views. You, if you're not happy with the decision in one court, take it to the highest court in the land. Mm -hmm. And they will decide and then you have to respect their choice. But to demonize them, I think it's deeply prom problematic and I think it um, undercuts the value of our institutions. So reflecting on the Truth Commission, what were its strengths? It was incredibly mm. important because, you know, I've worked in a number of countries that have been conflict-ridden. Mm. I also always remember, you know, in 1984, the United Nations held one of the first conferences mm. on South Africa in conjunction with the anti-apartheid movement and I and two other people were sent out by the Archbishop to attend that. And the Palestinian Liberation Movement were there, as was the first time I met President mm -hmm. Mbeki and Oliver Tambo. And I remember speaking at Westminster Abbey, but I was so struck years later that the Palestinians believed that they would attain liberation first. Um, and, and when I look back and I think, why, why didn't they? And that's about the incredible leadership of President Mandela and, of course, the mm. internal, the, the UDF and the ANC and exile. It's the fact that they were able to seize the opportunity in the moment to see that peace was more important than war. Mm. By many, many countries around the world, why, why do wars continue? It's because people are not able to grasp that war is not good for the stability of any country or for the development of their citizenry. So I think that the Truth Commission, even though it was a compromise, it was a, a political compromise and we should recognize it as such, what it tried to do was to build some morality on, you know, out of what was a compromise which essentially took away the question of accountability for crimes that people should have been prosecuted for. But it went beyond that and, you know, it was the first commission in the world which actually heard the stories of people in public. It offered victims an opportunity to come before the nation to um, talk about their pain and their suffering, but it also offered perpetrators, in a sense, the opportunity to unburden themselves. And I think that even though many people are critical about it, what it said was a very important um, moment for everything in our country, that you can never do any of these things behind closed doors. And every other commission of inquiry has been challenged on that basis because that's the standard that the commission set. But the other was that um, I think it was an incredibly moral moment in our country in which we were able to look ourselves in the mirror, 
to look at what we each did at a systemic level, but also at an individual level, and to ask the question, where was I, what did I do, and what could I have done more? I think that, um, yes, there were mistakes and flaws, but there always are mistakes mm. and flaws um, in any commission. I think that it delivered to the nation a basis, a report upon which one could build. It's not mm. the end, as many countries who have mm. followed similar processes have shown. You actually build on that as a foundation to uncover further secrets which were hidden. I also think that its recommendations are very important. Go back and look at the one around the police mm -hmm. and what it said about public order policing. And my question is, if we had followed those recommendations, would we have had Marikana? Would we? I don't think so. So I think the commission was important in the life of the country. I know that many people are critical about um, you know, the, the amnesty provisions, but I also have, um, you know, as a seasoned lawyer who's worked in international criminal law, um, I think I'm very jaded by the whole question of international criminal justice. And I really believe that what we need to do is to put an emphasis on building domestic institutions, because even as we speak about the International Criminal Court, to be very, very frank, um, what's it really done? Ironically, given the South African government's recent hostility towards it as a result of the El-Bashir case, the ANC, specifically Dalla Omar, the first Minister of Justice in the Mandela government, and his advisor, Medard Rewelemira, played a key role in crafting it as an instrument of international accountability. But if the global order is unequal, it manifests in what you see in the court, she says. You know, it's a problem when the five big states are not signatories. Mm. And, you know, I was in mm. Sierra Leone when the American government was going around the world making sure that every country signed an Article 98 agreement which would exempt their own people from the purview of the ICC. Now, that in itself is problematic because um, from behind, you know, the back they can... Um, push their influence, but at the same time they are not bound by it. And you see it in the kind of um, issues that people have raised around the question of Iraq, the question of people like Donald Rumsfeld, um, George W. Bush. It would be interesting to see them indicted as well. So I guess in the absence of that, the question is what mechanisms are there for accountability? Suka has been central in crafting international human rights law, such as the Malabo Protocol adopted in June 2014, which extends the jurisdiction of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights to crimes under international law and transnational crimes. But for me, the bigger question is domestically. How do we domesticate international criminal law and crimes in our own legislation? And if you look at, you know, um, the African Union also created the special protocol around the court, in the court for Hassan Habre of Chad, which is being dealt with in Senegal. I think that's a very important example. But what many people don't know is that the Chadian courts themselves um, last year prosecuted a number of Hassan Habre's uh, accomplices, and they did it very, very quietly without any kind of special dispensation. They have begun the road to accountability. Hissène Habre, who ruled Chad from 1982 to 1990, was accused of killing tens of thousands of people under his regime and of using women for sexual slavery. His trial in Senegal was a first for Africa. It began last year and a guilty verdict for crimes against humanity was handed down at the end of May. The core issue is about immunity, she says, and many sitting heads of state or representatives of government have that in international law. 
South Africa, in contrast to many other states, has integrated international statutes that deal with crimes against humanity into its domestic statutes. It's an ambiguous issue, and um, last year when I was in Geneva, you know, I was doing a paper on Sri Lanka, and um, there was another academic, Paolo Gaeta, who was doing one on immunity, and I just I was so struck by the way in which I think the impunity question, particularly with leadership, is always a thorny issue, and that's because of this immunity issue. And so it's something that, you know, one has to um, navigate. Um, you know, I always remember Reed Brody, who worked for 20 years on the Hassan Habre case, said, you know, he sits with on his wall with, like, the pictures of all these dictators, and it's a long process. You're likely to spend 20 or 30 years working on trying to hold them accountable. But, I, I mean, in South Africa, we have an incredible jurisprudence. Um, we, you know, the fact that we not only um, ratified the Rome Statute, but we, you know, we um, integrated it into our legal system. So, like, we domesticated it. So, even if we, you know, abdicate from our um, Rome Statute obligations, the fact of the matter is, in our law, we have the possibility of prosecuting international crimes. And so... Um, if you look at that and you couple that with the jurisprudence of the Constitutional Court, I think that this is a very foolproof system. And really it would be the political issues like we've seen in the Bashir matter, which kind of, um, you know, uh, probably outweigh that. But I mean, not, you, you're not going to be able to escape the sanction of the courts. But while there may be some doubt about whether Bashir could be put on trial while he is a sitting president, there is another more immediate issue South Africa confronts. I think the bigger question for us is, um, did the government lie to the courts? And was there mm. a, a kind of... Uh, because I think that's the bigger rule of law problem. Mm. I think, all, you, know, you know, to pretend that law is not about politics, I think, is to be stupid. And international criminal law is essentially about politics. And it's about the politics of the victor, the politics of those who are in rather than out. Um, and in that context, I think the victims suffer. That's why the United States can not be a member of the ICC. Exactly, and yeah. Russia, and mm. China, and mm. India. South Africa's own domestic law, which brought into being the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, had a specific law for amnesty. And although relatively few amnesties were granted, there's nonetheless a perception that they were generously handed out. It's a fallacy. Mm. Actually, um, the only re- you know, there was a huge discussion in the Syracuse meeting before the Rome Statute on, around the content of our amnesties. And one of the reasons why it kind of passed master is because, truly speaking, in the world, you have not seen many political trials in international courts that have had the same kind of rigor. Um, I think that these things took place in public. Victims had a right to be represented. And yes, judges took a very political view. And maybe there could have been a better sense of the link with international law but having said that, I think that um, these were almost quasi-judicial processes. Of the slightly more than 7,000 applications for amnesty, fewer than 900 were granted. They didn't yeah. grant them, and that's why I think you see this ongoing question of how does a president use his pardon process to dish out um, you know, the opportunity for many of them to um, emerge from prison. And I mean, there's been... I think victims have taken the question of the president's use of his discretion using political pardons to court 
Um, and the president has had to stop that and in fact show good cause why somebody should be released. So in, in a way, the courts have also held him accountable to the um, legislation of the Truth Commission and he's not just been able to do what he likes. But most of those who were not granted amnesty have not been criminally charged. Sukkar and her colleague Howard Varney gave 300 names to the prosecuting authorities during the Mbeki government's term, which is one reason why the killers of Nokotulu Similani, a young woman who was a courier for the ANC's Mkonte Wasizwe, who was kidnapped, tortured and murdered, are now being prosecuted. They had been refused amnesty on the grounds that they did not make full disclosure. We said these are 300 cases that we believe if you investigated properly you could indict people. And I think not to prosecute makes a mockery, really, of the ones who did come before the commission. And that, I think, is really shameful because, um, you know, for the families of people like Nakatula Samalani, they're the ones who've been using their own private money to try and, you know, um, investigate these matters. So I really think that um, this is an issue the state needs to take to heart. Those 300 or so names you gave, do you know, have, have any of them been no. prosecuted? None. 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 One man who was not on her list, who was semi-literate and did not apply for amnesty, was prosecuted. Then you had the prosecution, or rather I would say the indictment of Adrian Flock and those two other guys. But they pleaded and, um, you know, they converted their plea and plea bargained and they were... Um, let off and you know they, they're so interesting they applied for the through the pardon process to have that conviction overturned but they didn't furnish any information and I remember having a huge fight with the NDPP around that point because they pleaded but they didn't reveal anything about the truth and then the moment the pardon process was open they were the first ones who tried to benefit from that process and I think civil society tried to block that. How do you feel about this? I honestly believe that serious crimes must be punished. Um, I think that we were very generous with the opportunity before the commission but I also think that you can't build a society on impunity and in my view I, I think you also have in South Africa a huge sense of denial and if we don't deal with these issues many people won't believe that apartheid happened at all or that these people committed such grave crimes. Mm. Um, and I think particularly for the white community, it's really important that they deal with their denial around these issues because people like to say, let's move on. Truth Commission's work is over. Why do we still dwell on these things? But it really matters for building a solid base of accountability in the country. I asked her if there was a way of dealing with the economic legacies of apartheid given that the Truth Commission did not focus on it in much depth. The Truth Commission, of course, was a product of its environment at the time where the world didn't want to deal with socio-economic rights violations or economic crimes. And, you know, South Africa, of course, was leading in that um, sense. In, we were the first country in the world, I think, to make socio-economic rights, not second-generation rights. But we gave it the mm -hmm. same legal status, and we also made sure that it was justiciable. Now, if you look at the legislation around the Truth Commission, while it certainly referred to investigating these specific crimes, but it also talked about dealing with the underlying causes. Now, I think that raised in the Commission the question of what do you focus on? And there were a number of us who were of the view that 
what it should focus on are these structural questions and not just look at killings or disappearances, etc., which were important, but that you really had to look at these underlying questions. And of course it was a debate we lost because the Commission was also a microcosm of the country at the time and there were people who had their own vested um, interests. And I mean, I think the one SOP we won, I always call it a SOP, was the idea that we would have these thematic hearings and institutional hearings. So you'd look at the mines and you'd look at labor. But I mean, go back to those submissions they made. You would swear that they didn't have responsibility for slave labor and exploitation in the country. And I mean, while the commission was doing its work, they were also taking out all their assets out of the country and transferring that to other places. So I think there's a real question around the issue of benefit. And that benefit was from the way in which the economy and the social and economic structures were organized to really benefit a particular group of people. Although there were other government arms that looked into questions such as land, Sukkot feels the commission, because of the central position it occupied, should have examined the structural effects of apartheid. I think South Africans as a whole needed to hear that story in the same way they heard about the way in which people were killed extrajudicially or tortured. And because it didn't happen, it didn't create a sense of, I am responsible. There were two meetings of business during this time, one in which the business trust was created and the other convened by then-President Mbeki when the captains of industry came together. But she believes they were let off the hook. That conversation still needs to happen, she says. I think it's absolutely imperative that somehow we find the people and the space to have that conversation. In some way, there has to be a sense of a shared responsibility for, I think, what we are seeing. This huge cohort of young people who are uneducated, illiterate and unemployable. What are we going to do about that? Because that in itself represents a threat to the country. The other is the question of um, ensuring that government delivers on its promises to people at the most basic levels. We have unhappy people in um, townships. It's not because we can't deliver. It's because of the way in which corruption has become entrenched at that level. And it's also about incompetency. I mean... Um, somehow we have to find the engineers, the water experts, etc., because I think water is going to become our next big problem in the country. So whose responsibility is it to ensure that we have that conversation? Because I think we have to harness our strengths together and we have to say we need to make this country work. The churches, civil society and other organizations need to drive this process to make sure there's a commitment to the vision of the democracy we began with. If you talk to people, there's such a sense of hopelessness and despair. Um, and I think we've got to find that joy again of what it means to be South African. Because truly, we're not as bad as many other countries around the region. I think there's still a lot of hope. There's still a functioning system instead. Yet a large majority of the country is locked out, she says, because of continuing inequality. There's a rage in the country. You know, first we burned the books, then we burned the libraries, the clinics, now we're burning people. Mm. And somebody has to put a stop to that. So how then do we make the work of the TRC count? The work of the Truth Commission was about um, putting the past behind us, but using the lessons of the past to build a common future for all of us, which would be based on, I think, the values of human dignity and equality. Um, and in fact, that notion of human dignity, that's what the Commission was about, 
how do you restore the human dignity, particularly of the victims, but also of the perpetrators. And as the Archbishop said, you know, so often, it's about finding the common humanity in all of us. Um, and I think that's the lesson that we should learn. How do we make the issue of human dignity and our common humanity the project for the future? That was Yasmin Suka, interviewed in Johannesburg on the 30th of June 2015. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town, produced by Jean-Michel. Thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzani Na. You've just listened to History for the Future, what we can learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.